0: Excellent singing this morning, and um, glad to be back up here. It's been a month since I've preached. Uh, I was gone, and uh, I've had some other people preaching, and so it's great to be back up here. I wanted to let you know. A couple weeks ago, I said that I would give a report today on my uh, mission trip to India. I'm going to do that next week, um, and the reason for that is next. I thought it would be fitting next Sunday morning. I'll do that before my message, and then in the evening. Uh, we are going to have uh, Pastor Suresh Singh. He is the pastor that I was with in India. He, he's here in the States, and he's going to be here that Sunday night to talk about his church and his ministry. And so I thought it would be good for me to do the same morning that he's here uh, in the evening. And so that'll be next uh, Sunday. First Corinthians chapter 11 is what Pastor Will just read, and uh, that is where we're going to be this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. God, we are um, grateful to be here. Uh, we're grateful to study your word. Uh, we're thankful that we have your word, that we know what we're reading and what we're studying is not just the wisdom of man, uh, but it is the wisdom of God. And Lord, I pray that you will help me as I preach, um, Lord, help me to uh, share the words that you have given to me, not my own lord i pray for those that are listening lord if there's any here that have not come to a saving faith in jesus christ i pray that your holy spirit will convict them today lord if there's believers that are living with known sin i pray that you will help them to confess that that they will be convicted and lord i pray they'll help us um, as a as a body as a group to understand the importance of what we are going to do in just a few moments, and then as participate in, in the Lord's Supper. Lord, I just pray that you work and guide through this message. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. At sunrise on Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, 350 Japanese warplanes flew through a mountain pass over the island of Oahu and rained death and destruction on Pearl Harbor. Eight battleships, 10 smaller warships, were sunk or put out of commission that day. 200 planes were completely destroyed. 3,581 servicemen were killed or wounded. The USS Arizona took a bomb down its stack and the boilers, the oil tanks, and the ammunition immediately exploded. The battleship went down in eight minutes, taking with it 1,100 sailors. Two months from today, we as a country will remember that day that President Franklin D. Roosevelt described as the day that will live in infamy. As we entered World War II as a nation, the the battle cry which uh, caused us and carried with us through that war was, remember Pearl Harbor. Throughout the history of our nation, there are other battle cries that have, ha, have been used such as, remember the Alamo, or one that maybe many of you haven't heard of, remember the Maine. Uh, that was a battle cry during the Spanish-American uh, War when Spain unexpectedly destroyed one of our ships, the USS Maine. Now, this morning I'm not going to talk about a battle cry of Christianity. It's not something that calls us to war, but yet it is a call to remembrance. See, all of those battle cries were for the purpose of remembering what had taken place, but I want to call you to remember something even more important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Pastor Will read this, but in verse 24 it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Of me. Once a month, I stand up here as we get ready to serve communion and then I read those words as a reminder of what uh, we are participating in. Someone has said that those uh, four words in the middle there, this is my body, are four of the most disputed words in the entire history of the church. Historically, those four words in, have engendered massive disputes and arguments. What do they mean? Some believe one thing; others believe another. But as we celebrate today the Lord's Supper, I want to take a little time. I don't always do this, but I want to take a little time and talk about what does it mean. Why do we do it? Uh, what's the importance of it? We look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 11. We're also going to touch on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at six elements. Of the Lord's Supper, six characteristics that we see in this passage. So, as we go through these, the first one you can take these in your notes in the bulletin. There, the Lord's Supper serves as a symbol of Christian unity. Now, it's important to understand what is the flow of this passage. Why? What is what has Paul been talking about, and where do we come to this point? Uh Pastor Nate is teaching in Sunday School 2 Corinthians, and I sat in his class for a few minutes this morning, and he gave an introduction, and I was like uh, wishing all of you would have heard it because it was a great introduction into uh, what we're talking about. But really, Paul uh, would have written a number of letters to the church at Corinth, and, and each uh, one uh, had a different message. But 1 Corinthians uh, was uh, dealing with some issues. See, Paul had received a letter from them, and they were talking about some problems they were having in the church. And so Paul decides he wants to write a letter to address some of these issues. And primarily starting in chapter 7, going on throughout uh, uh, the the next few chapters, Paul is is using a, um, a, a style of argument called, yes, but... And what he's doing is this, he's, he's trying to deal with some of these problems and, and at the same time he's commending them and how they uh, viewed them and, and trying to that yet correct a little bit about that. And so uh, he, he's dealing with some of these big issues. And so he would use this idea and so he'd come to uh, the different groups because there would be an argument, there would be disputes and he would come to one group and he would say, okay, I hear your argument and you are right. So he'd say, yes, but let me add something to that. And then he would go to the other side, and he would say kind of similar things. It's not that he was playing both sides. He was trying to teach them. And so he comes to the other side, and he says, I hear what you're saying, but let me kind of correct you on a couple things. Let me give you an example. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He says, now concerning the matter about which you wrote, see, they wrote to him and said, hey, we want to address these areas. It is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay. That was something they wrote. They said, hey, it's good, right? Are we right? And he's saying, yes. But then what does he say next? But, because some of you uh, have dealt with temptation to sexual immorality, each of you should have his own wife. So he begins talking about this topic. He goes on later in that section. He says, yeah, some of you say it's good to be single. He said, yeah, just like me, I'm single. But... Maybe for you, it's best if you're married. And he goes through, and that's kind of the way he handles the next few chapters, is yes, I, I want you to understand that. But, but when he comes to chapter 11, verse 17, there's a, there's a startling difference. Look at chapter 11, verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He simply says this, there is no yes, there is no, hey, great job, there is no, yeah, you're right on this, there is no praise at all. He says, the first thing I want to do is I want to start with a a, a but. In other words, here's the problem, and he starts off with it. There's no yes, only criticism. And the particular area in which he is criticizing them is how they were dealing with the Lord's Supper. So now, to understand what he's talking about, let me give you... <clears throat> some cultural uh, points so that you understand what's going on here in this time period. The Romans at this time period, maybe you didn't realize this, but there was a period in, Rome, in the Roman Empire when uh, the Romans were running on an eight-day week okay? Instead of seven days like we had, they ran on an eight-day week. And there was a period of time where they were transitioning. And uh, for a few, um, really a hundred years, where some places were still using an eight-day work week, or eight-day week, I should say. Uh, But the Jews in the Jewish world used a seven-day week. You say, well, how would that be an issue? Think about that for a moment. Think about if you lived in a culture where there was an eight-day week, and yet you worshiped on a seven-day week, that means that the day of worship would might be different each week based on your work. Okay, So what they would do in in, in these areas is what they would do is they would often, in order to um, not have an issue with people who are working, they would have their their gathering times, their worship times, their Lord's Day celebrations um, in the evening so that people would be done with work. The problem with that is, is members would show up at different times depending on their jobs. Let let, let, let me tell you what I mean by this, okay? So if you were independently wealthy, okay, which there were those people in Corinth, you were independently wealthy, then you could show up at any time you wanted, couldn't you? you just show up. And what they would do is they would gather for, uh, as they showed up, they would gather for a meal. And so these independent wealthy people would bring, and this is not actually what took place. I'm using this as an illustration. These independently wealthy people would bring in their steak and their wine and their fruit, and they would come and they'd be ready for a feast. But not everyone could come at that time. And so what would happen is a little bit later on, those. You had the independent business owners, those guys that, you know, sold things over on the side. Now, now they needed to stay open so they could sell, but yet at the same time, uh, they could close a little earlier because they had that flexibility, and so they could come a little bit later, and maybe they would bring, you know, they couldn't bring the steak, they weren't as rich, and so they'd maybe bring their hamburger <laughs> A little bit after that, you would have others arrive. Maybe the freemen, the ex-slaves, the workers, the citizens—just the average everyday people. They would bring their uh, their food along. You know, their hot dogs. They came a little later, and then the slaves would come slaves when would they get there well it depended what kind of slave they were some of them could come uh you know earlier but some of them man they they had a lot to do they had big tasks to do their boss was mean their boss was nasty and he didn't let them out as early as some of the others and so they came later and what would they bring with them well they didn't have anything so they would show up with nothing and by the time the slaves arrived, the fellowship had been going for quite some time. The, the, the meal had been, partake, been happening for a while, and, and uh, so they got together, and all this is taking place, and, and, and the, the ritual then was supposed to take place where they would then celebrate the Lord's Supper. But by this point, uh, there was a problem. There was disunity. You say, well, why? Well, can you imagine that? If you show up, and you're a slave, and you show up, and here you come in, and all these people, man, they've been eating for a long time. Some of them are full. Some of them are drunk. And They come in, and they start gathering for the Lord's Supper, and <laughs> this slave, his stomach's growling because he's hungry. And over here, this guy, he's full, and he's drunk. And what happened was is there was divisions. We see that addressed here. Notice what Paul says. Look at verse 20. He says, well, let me start, go back, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together to church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says to them, hey, when you're coming together, are you coming together for the Lord's Supper? And he's saying, no, that's not why you're actually coming together. You're showing up, and it's not to partake in the Lord's Supper. It's it's to partake in your, your own feast. Verse twenty one. He goes on and he says, "For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk." Says so this is a problem we're having: is you're you're going ahead and you're eating your own meal, but you're 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 not doing it in a way. And so, is this creating unity in the church? No, because you have this slave over here who's hungry. You have this rich person over here who's drunk because he's been eating and drinking for a while. He says that's not what it should be. Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying the the Lord's Supper isn't primarily about satisfying your own needs. Don't you have your own house? Go home and eat. Come into the house of God. You, by what you're doing is this, is you're humiliating these slaves over here who have nothing and you're making them feel like, like they're insignificant and you're causing division. Now you and them are the same in, in God and there should, be, uh, there should be that commonality but what's happening is there's that division and you're causing a lot of problems and a lot of fighting because of that. So just eat at home. Paul's not happy here. He's He's not happy. Now, throughout this book, there's various times where he tried to praise them for things they were doing. And here, what he's saying is, do you want me to praise you about this? I'm not going to do it. Because you're, you're missing the point of what's supposed to be happening here. See, this, uh, what, what they were doing was is they were creating disunity. And what Paul was saying is, is this was supposed to be a time that was creating unity. Look down at verse 33. He, he adds to it at the end here. He says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat. Now, he's not saying that they can't eat together. I want you to understand that. He's saying, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Okay? If you're just coming just to eat, do it at home. He's telling them, you know, come together. The idea was for unity. He's saying this, if it's, if it's going just to, if you're eating together, it's going to just generate uh, more animosity and more resentment and more bitterness and more feelings of superiority and inferiority and inclusion and exclusion. He's saying, if that's all it's going to do, then don't do it. Because this was supposed to be a time of remembrance that was supposed to be the central point of Christian unity. And it had become a focal point of division. Now, today in our church, this isn't an issue, okay, in the sense that we're not coming together and creating disunity because we're, you know, the the rich people of this church are eating and the poor people aren't in in the fellowships. That's not what the idea for us. But what I want you to take from this is what was the purpose that he was wanting them to do? He was wanting them to come together for the unity. What was the unity to center around? The unity was centered around uh, the remembrance of the Lord's table. And so it was. It, the sense here was it was to be unifying. Now look back at 1 Corinthians chapter ten. I want to look at a couple verses there uh, where he touches on this in the midst of talking about other things. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, and uh, let's start in verse sixteen. He says the cup of blessing. That we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are, uh, who are many, are one body, for we are all partakers of one bread. Now, this, this, it's pretty clear in this passage. There is, there is a sense where it's talking about the bread that we eat represents the body of Christ. It's talking about the b- bread and the body. He says, as we read a few moments ago, this is my body that was broken for you. But also, in other places in Scripture, it talks about the body of Christ being the church. Okay? And so uh, by extension then, this bread can also symbolize Christ's body, uh, broken on the cross, but also Christ's body, which is the church. And so there's a unity involved there as we see what it's talking about there. But then in verse 16, if you look there, he talks about this cup of blessing. Is it not a participation? We're supposed to participate. That word participation is, could be rendered better fellowship. This cup, this uh, body which is broken, these are elements which are supposed to bring about fellowship together. Not fellowship in the sense of we sit around talking, but the, 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 the unity that it is brought about. It is not uh, the body of Christ that we participate in. Uh, it is the fellowship that we participate in. It is not suggesting that somehow we ingest Christ or we ingest Christ's b- blood or we ingest Christ's body and therefore we participate in him. Uh, that's, it's, it's not what the text is saying. It's a fellowship. It's a coming together. It's a unifying because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is to be a unifying thing. But second of all, the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance, a time to remember. We move down in this passage to verse Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 then, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, Some have said, uh, and I've heard people say that, this idea of the Lord's Supper being all about remembrance is too cerebral. Um, We've got to think too much about it. But um, there's more to it than that. Let's think of for a few moments here about the first Lord's Supper. Okay, Jesus Christ instituted this when? He instituted this the night uh, he was betrayed, the day before he was killed. Okay, what was taking place when he instituted this? Uh, remember this, it, the Lord's Supper was built upon the remembrance of the Passover. In fact, that's exactly what the, the, what Jesus and his disciples were doing on the night when he instituted the Lord's Supper. They had, they had gathered together and they were um, participating in the Passover. Well, so then what's the Passover? The Israelites would gather every year to remember the Passover. Um, by remembering, it was kind of a... A covenant renewal. It was kind of a way of saying, God, we remember what you have done for us, and so therefore we renew our covenant with you to follow you and to do what you ask us to do. And so the Passover, they remembered, the Passover was their time when they remembered when uh, the angel of death passed over their house. If they had the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, like God commanded, and and he passed right over and he spared their 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 firstborn. But those who did not have the blood on the doorpost and the lentil, when the angel of death came, he killed the firstborn and so this time of Passover was a time to remember when the angel passed over it was a time to remember when the the people were spared it was a time to remember when they were they exited from Egypt and they crossed over the Red Sea and and they became a new nation in the wilderness on their way to the promised land year by year they celebrated this Passover and they remembered what God had done for them And here we we come to the the New Testament, Jesus Christ and his disciples, they are celebrating the Passover. And they're going through the the Passover rituals, and as they're going through the Passover rituals, Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper. He begins to tell them, hey, this is what I want you to do. In the middle of that, uh we say a phrase in, as we do the Lord's Supper that seems to be um, normal for us to say, but it must have been shocking for the disciples to hear. Because in the middle of that uh, experience of doing the Lord's Supper, Jesus is talking to them. And now, remember, he had spent three years with them. I mean, every day. You ever spend three years with someone? If you're married, you, you know what that means. If you're a parent, you know what that means. Do you think you're going to forget them anytime soon? I mean, how many of you are going to be like, oh, man, I forgot. I have a wife. You're not going to do that. You spend a lot of time with someone, or maybe it's not even your wife. Maybe it's someone you work with, and you've worked with them day after day after day, and after a while, you're not going to forget them. Yet Jesus comes to them, and he says to his disciples, I want you to, uh, on a continual basis, I want you to do this because I want you to remember me. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, well, yeah, we're going to remember you. Don't forget me? Why would we forget you, Lord? I mean, what, what, what would cause us to forget you? Why don't you think about this for a moment? If you've been a Christian for long and you know anything about yourself, you know that sometimes it's easy to forget. Sometimes it's easy to forget and sometimes even uh, as we come to communion we forget why we're doing it and we forget what Jesus Christ did for us and we go throughout our day living as if if Jesus did nothing for us. So Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. In fact, this Passover and this Lord's Supper, uh, they fit into a larger structure. Remember the the Passover remembered that old covenant, the old agreement that God had with his people of Israel. But Jesus comes, as we read just a moment ago, in verse uh, 25, it says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what did that mean? What did that mean for the people of Israel? Remember, uh, they followed the old covenant, which was, uh, was recognized and was remembered in the Passover, and, and, and the Passover was a ritual established by God, so it could only be eliminated by God. But they understood, uh, uh, those that have spent time studying, understood that this new covenant was going to come. Jeremiah talked about this, and you can read it on your own, but in Jeremiah 31, he talked about uh, a new covenant would come, and this, this new covenant that Jeremiah predicted uh, would, would bring about abundant forgiveness, it would It would bring about uh, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people It, it would bring about um, the no longer the, ne- the necessity to no longer have mediating priests or mediating kings or mediating prophets. This new covenant would stamp god's law on their hearts and that was an exciting thing and all of this was finally seen in the death of Christ. But as Jesus is going through his disciples within this framework, I, I don't believe they understood it. I mean, they, they were hearing all this. They understood about this, this new covenant that maybe one day would come. And they understood about a Messiah that one day would come. But in that moment, I don't think they got it. But that night, Jesus goes and He's betrayed by one of his own, Judas. He's taken, he, he's, he's mistreated, he's beaten, he has a crown of thorns placed on his head. He's then taken and he's taken to Golgotha, to Calvary. And he's nailed to the cross and he's placed on the cross. And the disciples see him, they hear of him in some cases because they couldn't stay around, that he is dead. I'm sure all of these things begin to go through their mind and they still don't get it. Why is Jesus saying that we're supposed to remember him? Why is Jesus saying all these things he said, this new covenant, what is this all about? Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. These things are still going through their head. And for the next few weeks, Jesus stays on the earth and wanders around and has times where he's teaching them And you're interacting with them, and then one day he ascends to heaven. And as they're going through, they begin to remember all that Jesus is talking about. And they remember that all of this, all that happened was to to point to, to two things that Jesus told them to remember. The body and the blood. That Jesus told them to remember that all that he did uh, was was for them. And that his body was broken for them. And that his blood was shed for them. And all of this comes together and and it it, it causes them to remember this simple little ritual that we do once a month. That the disciples were told by, by Christ to do endlessly repeated. To remember what he did that night on the cross. That it wasn't just a simple death. It wasn't a death that was done because Jesus had no authority or no power. It was a death that Jesus willingly did to bring about a, a promised new covenant, new agreements, new way. And they realize what he meant by this do in remembrance of me. See, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a time when we remember. That we reflect back in, in not a visual way, the way the disciples could, but we reflect back on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But not just what he did, but why he did it. But then thirdly, the Lord's Supper, it was a proclamation of Christ's death. Look at verse 26 again. It says, For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The verb that's used in that passage, proclaim, is one of three commonly used uh, uh, Greek words throughout the New Testament talking about the proclamation of the gospel. That, that, that what he's saying in this passage is, is as we take the Lord's Supper, it is, it is for the purpose of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now there are churches today who uh, will invite anyone in the building who is not a member or not a Christian, to leave the service during communion. That was not the intention here. It is not just for Christians only. Now, I will say this, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but participating in the communion, I do believe, is for believers only. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But observationally here, he says in this passage, proclaim. And so who are you proclaiming it to? You're proclaiming it to those who observe it. It becomes a visible word of God that we remember. For a person who has never seen a Christian communion service, it may seem to be a little bizarre. Uh, so let me take a few moments to talk about what's going on here. We believe that God gave his body to, to be broken for our sins. That he shed his blood and by doing so, by giving his life, that we can be forgiven. And this, this ordinance that we do is to remember uh, what he gave up so that we might be forgiven. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, as I said, its don't, don't take of these elements. See, because when you take of these elements, you're saying, I remember. But if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you don't really remember. So I kindly ask you not, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not to participate. But to Observe. Observe as, as the communion elements go around, as Christians take them, what they are doing is by doing that is saying that they understand that the death of Jesus Christ, that those elements symbolize the death of Jesus Christ is what they hold all of their hopes for reconciliation. They hold all of their hope for re- removal of sins, for forgiveness, for hope for eternal life. That is why we participate that I realize that the only way that I can have hope is through the death of Jesus Christ. And so we participate in these elements to remember that. And we participate in these elements to proclaim to the world around us what Jesus Christ did for us. Fourthly, the Lord's Supper is a temporary ordinance We see in verse 26 again, and at the very end of the verse there he says, you you proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes. In the new heaven, and the new earth, we're not going to need to celebrate the Lord's Supper anymore. We're not going to have to be reminded of the wounds of the Lord because we're going to be in his presence. We're not uh, going to have to think to remember that his death transformed us, that we're no longer tempted by sin. We no longer, in, in the new heaven, and the new, new earth, will sing songs like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're no longer going to have to uh, ask God to forgive us our sins because they are permanently forgiven And so we are no longer going to have to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so he says, uh, continue doing this until I come back. We'll no longer have some ordinance that will cause us to remember. We will remember because we'll be in the presence of God. And because of that, this is a temporary thing that itself anticipates the Lord's return. Fifth, The Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for self examination. I'm going to take a few moments to focus on these last two points that come from verses 27 down to 32. This is is, um, what Paul, additional um, information that Paul is adding to what Jesus had said to his disciples. And he comes in verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore, because it's remembrance, because it's participating, it's fellowshipping in, together in, in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, because it is proclaiming to the world what Jesus Christ did, because it's something we're going to do until Jesus Christ came, because of all that, look what he says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the, blood and, uh, the body and blood of the Lord. It's very, important to re- it's very important to recognize that the in and an unworthy manner describes your approach. As you come today, as the deacons in a few moments pre- distribute, as you come to that, what is your approach? Now, it's interesting in this passage that, that phrase um, unworthy we see here is, a, uh, is an adverb, okay, Those of you that are English scholars, uh, an adverb is different than an adjective. An adjective describes um, someone or something. An adverb describes uh, or adds to uh, the action that is being done. And so what he is saying is this. He is not saying uh, whoever eats and is unworthy. He's not describing you as being unworthy. Okay? Because here's the reality. Every single person is unworthy. Of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We're all unworthy. He's not describing you as being unworthy. Because every one of us are going to come. And, and that should be a humbling fact. Every one of us come. And we are unworthy. But what he's describing is your approach. Do you come in a, in, in, with the approach to God. In a worthy or unworthy manner. Okay, so what is an unworthy manner? Well, for starters, an unworthy manner is saying, I remember the death of the Lord, while at the same time I am nurturing all kinds of sin in my life. An unworthy manner is saying yes I participate and by participating I say I remember what Jesus Christ did for me how Jesus Christ shed his blood for my forgiveness for my salvation I remember all that but yet at the same time I am living with complete sin in my life unrepented sin Essentially it's deceit It's it's lies It's it's an unworthy approach as I said, I can never be worthy of the blood and the body of Christ, but a, a, but, but a worthy a manner of approach is one of full humility and self-examination. If you come to this table when you're supposed to remember and you say, I I remember the body, I remember the blood, when deep down inside of you, you are nurturing resentment and sin and arrogance and prayerlessness and lust and hatred and gossip, and you say, I remember, while you have all of those sins in your life and and you're, you're okay with them there, then what does this passage say? You are guilty. You are sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. You're sinning against the cross. You're sinning against Jesus Christ. You're sinning against his sacrifice. So what is your manner? Verse, verse um, 28 there, he continues to respond with that possibility. He says then this, okay, what's the response to that then? Let a man examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now this Ordinance, then, is meant to be a call to self-examination, repentance. Hey, listen, if you come here this morning and, and this, the communion is being passed around and you realize that you are not right with God, don't take it. Now maybe you can get right with God in your seat here and you realize, hey, I'm not right with God. And so you get on your knees, you sit in your seat and you say, God, forgive me. And you make those things right. But maybe it's possible that you're not right with God because you're not right with someone else. And maybe you can't do that in this moment, then don't participate. Because what he's saying is, is if you come to God and you have sin that you have in your life, that you're harboring, that you're hanging on to, and you don't make it right, and you participate, then what you are doing there is you are guilty of sinning against Christ's sacrifice. And so what he's telling us there is to examine ourselves. This does not mean, let me clarify, this does not mean that we approach this time with sinless perfection. That would be impossible, and that would actually be that we are trying to make ourselves worthy, and we can't, okay? But the question is your manner of approach, and your manner of approach must be one of self-examination and confession of sin. I hope you don't take this time of communion lightly. I hope, whether you're a, uh, you're a nine-year-old or you're a 90-year-old, I hope you come with, with a seriousness of heart, a somberness of mind, coming to this and saying, hey, I want to remember what Christ did for me, and so therefore I need to examine myself. Is there sin in my life? I, I remember... Growing up, and I, I don't know, maybe this was never taught to me, or maybe I never got it, but I remember, you know, at times as a, as a young person and as growing up, as a teenager even, where, you know, communion was like, oh, cool, I get a snack almost the end of the service. That's not what this is. This is not just a time where we, we do this and it's a ritual. If it's become that for you, then, then you need to make sure that you get that right as well. This should be a time where we come forward. Otherwise, this becomes not only a farce, but it becomes a blasphemous farce. We are claiming to remember by, in, by what means we are saved while, in fact, deep in our lives, we prefer sin. What we're saying is we're coming to this communion table and we're saying, yes, God, yes, Jesus, I remember what you did for me and I'm thankful for that, but hey, Don't touch this sin in my life. Christ has died for us. Yet, that freedom does not warrant the kind of carelessness which we often approach the Lord as if this table was a bit of magic to bless us for the coming week. It's something that we need to come with, with a desire to examine ourselves. And then finally, The Lord's Supper can be hazardous. Look again at verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul contends that at least some of the ailments in the congregation at Corinth were caused by nurturing sin while still approaching the Lord's table. Remember, go way back to the beginning of this when when they were coming and and there was animosity between the rich and the poor and there was all this division. And he's saying, some of you are coming and you're, 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 you're holding on to your sin. Nowhere does the Bible teach that all illness is the direct result of immediate sin. We should not be foolish to think that every uh, illness is the direct result of, of a particular sin, but we should also not be foolish to think that it may not also be, possibly it could be, the direct result of sin. And that's what Paul is saying here in this passage. You guys are harboring this sin. You're coming and you're not examining yourself, and you're, you're doing this communion time in an unworthy way, and yet then you're coming back and saying, I don't understand why, why I'm having all these problems. He's saying, hey, That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's important to remember that we serve a God who's holy. He's pure. And the worst thing that can happen to you is that he does not discipline you. And what Paul is saying to the church here is that they are... Being judged by God, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If We examine ourselves, if we made things right in our own heart, God would not have to judge us. When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world, is what he says. It's a good thing sometimes to face the judgment of God so that we'll turn from our sin. God help a church who no longer is being judged by God and there's no discipline, that becomes a dead church. And that means then that the Lord's table, the communion, is a place that can be very dangerous. Because we serve one who says, I am the Lord God, and my my glory I will not give to another. But I want it for myself. And what does God want from us? He wants someone who is of a broken spirit, as David said, who trembles at his word. The flip side of that is that it can be a place of remembering the boldness that we are able to have in the presence of God because of what Christ did. Christ did die, and we remember that. Our sins are forgiven, and we remember that. We are called to, the children of God, and we remember that, we're heirs of a new covenant, and we remember that. As we go into this time of communion, I want you to ask yourself two things. First of all, um, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Not in your own works, not in um, being here, not in any religious act you have done, but have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? And then secondly, if you're a Christian, have you examined yourself? Are you approaching uh, what we're about to do in an unworthy manner? If so, make it right. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for what you teach us through your word. Um, God, as we look at this passage, we see that this church in Corinth was dealing with so many different issues, but sometimes it's, it's easy to look and say, hey, they had this problem, they had that problem, and we miss our own. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us as a church, First Baptist Church in Mishawaka that we'll see our own areas of weakness, our own sin, and we'll be humble enough to examine ourselves and approach your throne. And Lord, I pray that you help us to truly remember why we're do- doing what we're about to do. Or this is not a ritual. Help it to not be ritualistic in the way that we do it. But Lord, help it to be something that we do because we truly are grateful and we're truly reflecting on what you did, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. If there's any in here that have not placed their faith in Christ, I pray that you help them to seek someone out, an usher, a pastor, a deacon that we could help share uh, with them how they can know you. Lord, if there's any Christian here that needs to repent of sin, I pray that you help them to have the boldness to do that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.